The rest of you go ahead and open your Bibles to Joshua 6. While you're opening up to Joshua 6, so um, how many people know the name Roger Stallback? Roger Stallback was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys and is considered one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. And Roger Stallback, who, who led his team to a Super Bowl championship in 1971, he admitted that his position at quarterback was unique, that he wasn't allowed to call his own plays like many quarterbacks are. And that was a big source of trial for him, that he wasn't allowed to call his own plays as the quarterback. His coach, Tom Landry, very famous NFL coach, sent in every play, told, told Roger when he was going to pass, when they were going to do a run play, and it was only under the most dire of emergencies that Roger was allowed to call his own play, and Coach Landry told him, and you better be right about it. Roger considered his coach Landry, he, he said this, to have a genius mind. It wasn't a lack of confidence in his coach's football strategy, Roger said it was pride that said he should be able to run his own team. And Roger later said this. He said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. This morning, as we continue our sermon series in Joshua, we're going to see that Israel is going to be called to have faith in their commander, who ultimately is God, and they're being called to perfectly execute a battle plan of the commander's design. They're not allowed to call their own plays, even if the plan seems like the worst battle plan ever. So in Joshua 6, we're going to see this Lord command his people to follow a plan that's been spoken about for generations. This is not a new plan. And this plan is a sure thing that God is doing. And how one relates to God or how one doesn't relate to God is going to make all the difference to the outcome in this. Specifically, we're going to see this, that faith-grounded obedience is the difference between victory and defeat. Faith-grounded obedience is the difference between victory and defeat. So let's dive into this very familiar Bible story about the battle at Jericho and pay close attention to the details as we're going to read all the way to verse 21, but I'm going to back up and start us in chapter 5, verse 13. Here we go. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Verse 6. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So we caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually and the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Father, thank you for your word. Help Help us glean from your perfect, powerful word today. Help me to not speak things that are untrue about it at all. Bless the preaching of your word today for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, point number one today. God lays out a faith-dependent battle plan. God lays out a faith-dependent battle plan. So let's recall where we are in the greater story of Joshua. The Lord has called Joshua to take Moses' place in leading the people of Israel into the land that God promised centuries ago to Abraham. And he's promised Joshua that he, the Lord, will be with him. The nation consecrated themselves before the Lord, then they miraculously crossed 
the flooding Jordan River as the Lord parted it, and they walked on dry land. And then at God's instruction, they, they've set up memorials for generations to come to remember this. They've circumcised themselves to mark themselves as set apart for the Lord. They reinstituted the Passover celebration, remembering the salvation and deliverance from slavery. And Joshua has met and received instruction from what appears to be the Lord himself. And now in chapter 6, we see this battle plan laid out. But before we revisit these details of the plan that we just read through, let me help you just understand the situation about Jericho itself a little bit. Jericho was considered a very mighty city at the time. It had these formidable walls that would be quite difficult for even the fiercest, most skilled army to be able to overcome. And they're so thick that people actually lived inside the walls. Do you remember that from Rahab, um, where her household was in the wall? It was also situated by an oasis, and it was referred to as the City of Palms. There was such a lush provision of water in there from this oasis. The men there were huge warriors, very skilled, it says. And this is what terrified the first spies that Moses sent. Do you remember that? Where they came back and they said, we are just like grasshoppers to these people. They will kill us. They will slaughter us. This city also guarded the primary road into the central hill country of Canaan. And so what you have here is a very formidable city set up to guard with very skilled, very mighty men to protect it. And verse 1 says this, The city of Jericho, the mighty city full of mighty warriors, was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. We've read multiple times already of how the people of this city heard of the mighty acts of God on behalf of the Israelites. And these people in Jericho, they are terrified they are terrified the people of jericho they have resisted and defied and profaned the name of this god and now he and his people are at their doorstep god says to joshua look i have delivered them to you already it's already done God has spoken about this in Exodus, in Leviticus, numbers of times in the book of Deuteronomy. God reminded Joshua at the beginning of this book that he has given them the land. Rahab, a resident of Jericho, testified that she knows the Lord has given them this land. Victory has already been accomplished. It just needs to be walked out now. Hear this. Any fighting that Israel is going to do here is from victory, not for victory. Israel is not needing to fight for victory in this. They are fighting from victory that the Lord has already done. And as we look at the battle plan, we see something unique about it. It's really not that sound of a military strategy. It's actually more of a religious ritual than it is a military strategy. First, Joshua shares the plan with the priest. Did you catch that when we read through it? He didn't call his commanders and his warriors around. He talked to the priests about what was going to go down here. The priests and the ark are going to be at the center of the column parading around Jericho. 
The only sound is going to be the seven priests blowing the seven trumpets of ram's horns and the sound of feet walking. No other noises around this. For six days, they're going to circle the city once each day. And on the seventh day, they're going to circle it seven times, and then at Joshua's command, they're going to shout. I mean, let's think about this for a second. What type of crazy battle plan is this? You're coming to battle to take the land. See, in these times with a city with formidable walls, there were really only two strategies um, that could be used to try and overcome this city. The first one was to siege the city, block it all off from everything, and just starve them out of food or water until they either die or they give up. The other strategy was to build structures that would allow you to scale the wall, and then hopefully you had enough Um, enough soldiers to be able to survive the defensive efforts to still eventually make it over the wall. Jericho Jericho had ample supplies of food and water thanks to the oasis. They could stay there quite a while, some think even indefinitely, with the provision that they had inside the city. And let's face it, these are skilled warriors trained to defend. Any attempt to scale the wall would result in massive casualties, and you would need an almost infinite supply of warriors to overwhelm the defensive efforts of those skilled warriors. Now, I think if it were me, I would be really tempted to say, Joshua, I need some more details here. I really don't think walking around the city in silence for a week and then shouting on the last day is actually going to do much of anything. I mean, we're going to be sitting ducks out there. They could kill us from atop the wall, shoot arrows or throw rocks down on us. Walking around the wall and yelling at it certainly doesn't seem like a military strategy that any self-respecting general would, would be willing to sign on to. But hear this, this plan was never about the Israelites' superior military strategy. It was about having faith in God to do what he promised he would do over and over. God is the one who will defeat his foes. Israel's responsibility has always been to put their faith in God, their hope in God, to worship him wholly, and to live righteously before him. To worship worship him only, worship him wholly too, to worship him only and live righteously before him. This is the reason the ark is at the center of this marching army. David Jackman comments this. He says, The purpose of the parade is to focus on the ark and therefore on the Lord so that both Israel and Jericho will know who is responsible for what is about to happen. God is the main character in this battle. And did you notice all the sevens in the chapter? There are 14 sevens in this chapter. And in the Bible, seven is often used to symbolize divine perfection or divine completion. And in ancient literature, when you see something repeated over and over, it's kind of like a bold or an emphasis, like, I want you to really see this. I really mean what's going on here. And we see all these sevens about divine perfection and completion. The ram's horns that are being blown are ceremonial horns used in the worship of the Lord. And horns symbolize God's power. That's what they symbolize when you see that in the Bible. The Israelites are going to be walking out a religious ceremony that puts the focus 
on God's divine perfection and completeness and His power over all He has created and all He has decreed. In a way, this is the extension of the worship that began with consecration. And then the memorials, worshiping after the miracles, circumcision, Passover, bowing down before the commander. This is just a continuation of that yielding, that worship. Richard Hess says that this is a sacred procession into the promised land. Even though the people participate, it's God's work that's happening. Israel must remember that this land was a gift to them and that the destructions of the peoples on the land is God's judgment on those peoples. We'll see more of this religious nature of the battle in our next point, but let's be clear about this. This plan requires a bold faith. It requires a bold faith. God is asking them to believe his promises to them and follow his commands to the letter, even though the plan seems ineffective at best, crazy at worst. Let me ask you, is there an area God is calling you to have a bold faith in him? A faith that's not dependent on your complete understanding of all the ins and outs of how he's going to work things out. It's a faith that says, God, I will say yes to you even if it seems crazy or doesn't make sense to me. It's a faith that says, God, I trust you. I trust you. I believe you and I trust you. Well, Next, we're going to see that this plan did require bold faith, but it also required obedience to carry it out. Second point today is God fights for his people and against his foes. In verses 6 through 21, we see the battle plan carried out. We've read that already. We see Israel follow the plan that God described. And in verse 20, the walls fell flat, just like God said they would. This is more evidence of God's divine action. You see, the walls didn't fall in and they didn't fall out. They fell upon themselves. The connotation that's in the original language here is that they were pressed down from above. The walls were pressed down from above. God crushed the walls. And there's actually archaeological evidence that confirms how we read Joshua 6 here today. Let that sink in for a minute. Israel worshipped God per his instructions, shouted in faith, believing what God had said, and God pressed the walls down from the top. So much so that it said the men of Israel were able to go straight up into the city from where they stood. Victory was gained not by military superiority, but by the action of God against his enemies. Now, Israel was given some instructions that are important we explore. Uh, they're going to be up on the screen here. After the walls came down, there were four things, that they, specific things they were instructed. In verse 17, the first one we see is that the city and everything in it is devoted to destruction. They're supposed to devote it to destruction, except also in verse 17, they were told, go get Rahab and her household, get them out of there. And in verse 19, the valuable things, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and iron. It was called holy to the Lord and should be put into the treasury of the Lord. 
not distributed among the people, put into the treasury of the Lord. And then in verse 18, they were told, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction or trouble's going to come to the camp. So let's talk first about God's command to devote to destruction the people, the animals, the goods, and the city. This is admittedly a hard text to read for our modern sensibilities. There are some that ask, did God just condone ethnic cleansing for a nation to go wipe out another nation? Because that what God's doing here? Is it fair to slaughter these people? Well, it's clearly not ethnic cleansing or Rahab and all her household would not be saved. They were not Israelites. And as we look deeper at this, we're going to see that what this is really about is religious purification. Religious purification. This phrase, devoted to destruction, comes from the Hebrew word herem, H-E-R-E-M. This word literally means to set apart as an offering to the Lord. So devoting to destruction is setting apart as an offering to the Lord. This refers to a custom that was called a ban, B-A-N, that involved devoting objects to a deity for its exclusive use, and most often that meant destruction. In Exodus 34 and in Deuteronomy 20, we can see that God has already commanded this. This wasn't something that was come up with on the spot. God has talked about this. Richard Hess summarizes these two passages, the um, Exodus and Deuteronomy passage like this. He says, the ban appears in the instructions to destroy completely all the population centers that are found in the land that God has given to Israel. The reason given there is so that the inhabitants of the land will not teach Israel their detestable practices, those associated with the worship of their gods. Joshua placed all of Jericho under the ban. For the living creatures, this meant their death. For the valuable possessions, it meant their dedication to the house of God. For the rest, it meant destruction. Through fire, nothing escaped that had been so dedicated. So what are these detestable practices that are so bad? Well, Leviticus 18 gives um, quite a number of them. Here's, here's four from Leviticus 18. These people were slaughtering young children to their god, Moloch. These things have been going on for generations. They were profaning the name of God. It says men were lying with men as with a woman. And males and females, it says, were committing sexual acts with animals. In that section of Leviticus, God says he will punish their iniquity. And get this, he says the land will vomit them out of it. So everyone, young and old, human and animal, was to be struck down with the sword, and the items deemed holy were to be given to the Lord, all of it as an offering, like a first fruits. God has decreed his destruction on sinners multiple times in the law already. That's not something, this is the first time this is showing up in Scripture. God is fulfilling his century-old promises to righteously judge evil rebellion. 
He has not been swift in this according to our timeline. These people have persisted in this rebellion against God and they have not turned from their gods to Yahweh. David Jackman says, judgment is always God's final resort and in this case it came after generations of provocation. So a fair question at this point is, what makes Israel so special? It's a fair question, right? I mean, they're not particularly faithful. They're not particularly righteous. But God is. They are in covenant with God. And He has made promises to them. And He has selected them to be His people in the Old Testament. He even tells them in Deuteronomy 9, it is not their righteousness that has merited any of this. Look at Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6 on the screen. It says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm, hear this, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. It is not because of righteousness, Israelites' righteousness. It's because of God's faithfulness to keep his promises every single time. Every single time. And God is bringing judgment on the wicked. It's important to note that this is not a model or a pattern that's designed to be repeated in our modern age. This is not some sort of biblical justification for Christian vigilantes to go around the land and execute judgment, God's justice on the unrepentant blowing up abortion clinics or different things like that. That is by no means what this text is enabling. This was a specific people following God's direct command for a specific land at a specific time because God had spoken a specific promise about that. In the New Testament, we are told to fight. We're told to fight in Ephesians. We just went through that a few months ago. We're told to fight not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. We're taught in the New Testament. We're commanded to love our enemies as ourselves. The Old Testament narrative is a foreshadowing of Christ and his ultimate victory. God redeeming his people from slavery to sin, leading them into the promised land of heaven where he has secured victory and defeated every single one of his foes. And like Israel, this is not something that has been accomplished by our righteousness. Our role is the exact same as Israel's. Bold faith, complete obedience. That's our job. Bold faith, total obedience. That's what we are called to do. Israel 
was also told to keep themselves from these things devoted or harm's going to come to the camp. Now, I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this this week because what we're going to see next week is the results of some of that. The, in Joshua 7, 1, the very first verse of the next chapter says this, but the people of Israel broke faith. Obedience matters, and it is linked to the validity of one's faith. Obedience is linked to the validity of one's faith. In chapter 6, Israel was full of faith and obedient, and the victory was won. Next week, we're going to see in chapter 7, Israel breaks faith, is disobedient, and defeat comes. Scripture's teaching us something very clearly here in these passages. James 2.16 says that faith without works is dead. Obedience matters not because it saves us, but because it displays the evidence of a life yielded to Christ, a life with true faith in God. Remember Roger Stallback's words from my opening story. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. If you feel like you are lacking harmony or fulfillment or victory in your life, I encourage you to be before the Lord and say, Lord, is there an area I need more faith? I need to put my faith in you instead of something else. Is there an area I'm not obeying that I need to obey? Not saying that guarantees any type of a feeling because Roger Stallback said something like that. I am saying Scripture tells us that this will ultimately be true in our lives when we put our faith in Christ and obey his commands. Ask the Lord, is there any way if your actions don't align with your profession of faith? any facet of your life where you're still learning to obey and pray like the psalmist did, search me, O God. Search me and find any grievous way within me. Show me anywhere my walk doesn't match my talk, Lord. And God promises mercy and grace to the humble heart that does that. If you want a resource to help you think through and evaluate this talk-walk alignment in your life, Talk with me afterwards. I have one or two good ones I could point you to. So this battle at Jericho is about religious purification. God is executing judgment on the iniquity of the people. God's covenant people are worshiping him, following him with faith and obedience, and God gets all the glory and God gets all the spoils. And the chapter closes out with three promises. Real quickly, point three, God fulfills his promises. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. I want you to notice a couple things about Rahab here. She is saved 
just as was promised. The non-Jew and her household are saved because of her faith. In the New Testament, both the books of Hebrews and James refer and they commend Rahab for her faith and her action in hiding the messengers. Rahab's faith expressed in her works is the means by which she is justified and rescued from the judgment of God at Jericho. Verse 23 says they brought her and left her outside the camp. This is because she was not consecrated yet. But we see in verse 25 that she has lived in Israel to this day. This to this day phrase um, is often used to refer to a lineage. Like It, it would be like saying my great-grandfather to this day lives in Somerville because I live in Somerville. The lineage lives on in Israel. In Israel. Don't miss this. A non-Jew has been grafted into the identity of Israel through faith expressed in obedience. Do you catch that? A non-Jew has been grafted into the identity of God's chosen people through faith that is expressed in obedience. So grafted in that she's listed in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of Rahab's line. Is this not like us today? We were sinners outside of the family of God, Gentiles without hope, but Christ came to save Gentile and Jew. We're then grafted into the family of God and given that identity child of God. It's who we are. Not because of our righteousness, but by being saved by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This faith is then expressed as we obey the commands of our Lord and live for His reputation, not ours. Promise made, promise fulfilled to Rahab. Continuing in verse 26, we see Joshua pronounce an oath Actually, a curse upon anyone who would rebuild Jericho. Verse 26 says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. A promise is made to anyone who would try and put back in order that which God destroyed because it represented profanity to him. It was rebellion to the one true God. Now, I had never made this connection until I was studying this passage this week. This promise is fulfilled in 1 Kings. Let me read you what it says in just 1 Kings 16.34. In his days, Hyalabethel built Jericho, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segev, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Promise made, promise fulfilled. And lastly, in verse 27, we see, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Promise made, promise fulfilled. God is faithful to every single promise he has ever made. 
There's not a promise that God has made that he reneges on. There's not a promise that God makes and says, well, maybe not. God is faithful to every single promise he's made. As Lord over everything, he asks two things of his people. One, that they trust him through faith and that they express their faith by obeying his commands. And he has graciously shown us over and over and over and over and over that he is faithful. There are many of you that could stand up right now and testify of how God has proven that to you personally. God is faithful. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our obedience. Promises made. Promises fulfilled. Over and over. Faith-grounded obedience is the difference between victory and defeat. And let me be clear. Victory does not always mean easy in our life these days. It doesn't always mean a lack of pain of suffering. It doesn't mean a guarantee that Christopher's blindness is going to be healed on this side of eternity. It doesn't mean worldly prosperity necessarily. It doesn't mean that every career ambition one has is going to be fulfilled. It means God is accomplishing his plan of his design and has enabled and invited those who put their trust in him to share in the spoils of his conquering work over sin and the grave. He's welcomed his followers to share the ultimate victory of unhindered fellowship with his very self forever. Forever. If you've never followed Christ with a faith-grounded obedience, I encourage you this morning to turn from your battle plan that I guarantee you is going to end in certain defeat. Turn to Christ who can forgive that rebellion and save you to ultimate victory. And believers, if you are aware of areas where your actions betray a lack of faith and obedience to what you claim, I encourage you to quickly repent to the Lord who is eager to extend grace and forgiveness. He has promised to forgive all who turn to him and trust in him. Promise made promise fulfilled. And as we walk daily seeking to obey this battle plan of our Savior, let's not forget that we are grafted into his family based on his righteousness, not ours. We can fight our daily battles from victory because God has promised in Philippians 1.6 to bring the work that he started in each of his people to its full and perfect completion in him. Promise made, promise he will fulfill. Let's pray.